Welcome to the Director's Chair. My name is Michael Fullylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I speak with political leaders and policymakers about their lives, their careers and their views on the world. My guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is the former US diplomat, policymaker and President of the World Bank, Robert Zellick. Born and raised in the Chicago area, Bob studied at Swarthmore College before completing a law degree and a master's in public policy at Harvard. He began his career in public service in 1985 when he joined the US Treasury, working for James Baker. In President George W. Bush's administration, he served as the US Trade Representative and the Deputy Secretary of State. And from 2007 to 2012, Bob was the President of the World Bank. He recently published a fascinating book, America in the World, A History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Thank you, Bob Zellick, for joining me today from McLean, Virginia, for the Director's Chair. Glad to be with you. Bob, you grew up in the Chicago area. Tell us about your upbringing. Yeah, I grew up about 25 miles west of Chicago in a small town called Naperville. And my parents had been longtime Midwesterners. Father had served in World War II in Korea, and I suppose... When I grew up, I had a lot of army gear around, but it was a modest middle-class family. Parents hadn't gone to college. And so early on, history was my, my window on the world. It would allow me to jump across time and geography. And your listeners may find one little story amusing. I forget whether I was eight or nine years old, but I was reading about Austria, and then I also was reading about Australia, and they sounded similar. But I wasn't quite sure. So I remember having to check to see how those two fit on the map. (laughs) It was quite a distance apart. Perhaps for like a lot of people in the U.S. or Australia, you know, education was my pathway to a sort of a different life. I did want to leave actually a small, medium-sized town that I grew from. But I had to work my way to college or get scholarships. I also was a cross-country runner, and that was an interesting connection with Australia because I remember watching the 68 Olympics with Ron Clark at altitude in Mexico City and feeling so bad for him. So Ron Clark and Landy, gentlemen, John Landy, were kind of part of my upbringing. By then, you'd worked out what was Austria and what was Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, the, the Australian runners were quite a model for, for some of us on the distance age at that time. The New Zealanders are pretty good too. But history then opened the way to studying economics and later law and public policy. And then I came recognized that finance was different than economics. So in a sense, my professional education was more of a combination of different skills. It's somewhat amusing in light of later events, but I, even though it was just a modest middle-class family, I had a sense of public service as a calling. So, you know, I was growing up in the, in the sixties and of course, perhaps with my father's military gear around, I had a sense of the U S and the world. So I was discovering along the way at college and then law school, and I did a joint law public policy degree, but I came across an idea there. I would try to work for people I could learn from. And frankly, they were people, different parties. Joe Califano, who had worked for LBJ, Pat Wald is a, one of the first women judges on the Court of Appeals, by one of my law professors, Phil Hyman, head of the criminal division. And then one of them was a fellow named Dick Darman, and he was the person that had connected me with the Treasury Department in 1985. So I hadn't known Baker, but I really came in actually, ironically, on the domestic finance side, working with banks and farm credit system and SNLs. 
But I soon moved to work with Baker as what today would be known as sort of a chief of staff position. At that time, it was the exec sec, so I controlled all the paper flow. And then in 1988, I was asked to go over to what we call Bush 41, so George Herbert Walker Bush's election campaign in July of 88. I was going to be, I was just there a few weeks before Baker came over. And when I started, we were 18 points down, <laughs> but I had no idea how it would turn out, but I thought, it would add a bit of a political education to my experience. And I ran the issues in speechwriters. And lo and behold, we won. This gives you a little insight. Mm. I had some very good opportunities to go to the White House to run the economic and domestic policy or be the deputy at OMB, our budget bureau. But I decided to stay with Baker. So that's where I went to the State Department in 89. And that was the busy time at the end of the Cold War. All right. So tell me a bit about James Baker. He was the subject of a biography recently by two friends of mine, Susan Glasser and Peter Baker. He's often spoken of as a gold standard for Washington operatives and a gold standard actually for secretaries of state. You were closely associated with him, as you say, for a lot of your career. Why was Baker such a successful figure in Washington? He was always focused on getting things done. And that's where I think we, (laughs) although uh, we were spanned from 25 or 30 years, we connected quite well. And his combination was policy, politics, organization. And it was a superb boss because he was the sort of person where if you stayed up till 3 a.m. sort of rewriting the talking points, he would always use them. He'd always make them better. And where he was critical for President Bush 41 was that they were they were almost like brothers as, as partners. But Baker was the one who was constantly on point in terms of trying to assess the situation and accomplish things. So the book that you talked about is a good book, the Peter, Peter Baker and Glazer book. It tends to focus on Baker as the political person and negotiator. And not surprisingly for two political journalists, it misses a little bit of the strategic dimension. He was the sort of person that, frankly, he didn't care what your background was or where you were from. I'm not even sure he knew as much about my background as I just told you. But it was if you if you were somebody who could be helpful and help get things done as part of a team, frankly, you would get more and more responsibility. So Frank, taking the example that I gave you, and I, I went to the State Department at age 35 and was an undersecretary, which is kind of unusual in the foreign policy world. So I had good opportunities early on. You mentioned that this time at State was, well, I think you called it a busy period. And in fact, it was a very busy period in the history of the world. You had the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and America was living through what Krauthammer called the unipolar moment. So what did that feel like to be in the middle of the unipolar moment and working hard to extend that moment, if you like, and to derive as much value from it as possible? Very fast paced. <laughs> so, so things are coming at you very quickly. So if you think about it, much of the, as you mentioned, much of the focus was on the end of the Cold War in Europe, you know, German unification, where I was the lead negotiator. But that was the same year of Tiananmen Square. In the U.S. context, the Bush period was also when we negotiated NAFTA and when we started APEC. And of course, this leads to the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq and then dealing with the Gulf War coalition. It actually was also the same, the one climate change agreement that the United States has ever ratified as a treaty, which I was also sort of guiding. So the nature of how we tried to approach this, Michael, was we had strategic frameworks 
but we were constantly having to adapt pragmatically to events. And this fit very well with Baker's style because he, he was there to assess how to use America's power effectively. People used to refer to him as the iron fist and the velvet glove. Another way of thinking about it was he was someone who people wanted to be his friend and they didn't want to be his enemy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But also the use of power had a restraint to it, which in a sense, I think, made it more effective. So Baker, as, as a person, I think, recognized what other people could bring to his team without feeling threatened. So Dennis Ross, a colleague of mine, and I really, one of us or both of us always traveled with him. We helped on a lot of the strategy and policy. Margaret Tutwiler did a lot of the communications issues. We obviously were connected with Congress. And we tried to bring in some of the people that the talent that we saw within the State Department, whether Bernie Aronson dealing with Latin America or people in the Middle East or our European team. And so it was a very satisfying period, except for the fact we lost in 92. And yet, despite that loss, George H.W.'s reputation has only increased in luster in recent years. How do you assess him as a president now, looking back on his time? Yeah, that is interesting. He was quite rare in politics in that he was a true gentleman, but he was also fiercely competitive. And people often miss that aspect of Bush. And that's where the Bush, I think historians will look closely at the Bush-Baker relationship because they both had a sense of trying to accomplish things, trying to win. I think Baker, by his nature as a negotiator and a lawyer, as an advocate, was more focused on the action for accomplishments. But Bush had a view of the world, in part based on his extensive international experience, very much based on personal ties. I remember that leaders around the world were somewhat surprised they'd get the message they had a call from the president of the United States and they didn't they didn't realize that it was indeed George Bush. Mm. I think one other point though is that a lot of the early histories focused on German unification, peaceful end of the Cold War, end of the Soviet Union, then the Gulf Coalition. What they've missed, I think, in the book that you kindly mentioned, I as I reflected on the effect in the years to come, he laid a lot of the cornerstones for what became the Clinton and Bush 43 presidents. So the the Middle East peace process, some of the unfinished activities in the Persian Gulf, the Uruguay round that create the WTO, NAFTA, I mentioned APEC, and even the global climate change framework. So it's quite interesting. If you look at the policy agenda for the next 16 years across Clinton and Bush, Mm. a lot of the fundamentals are laid with this one-term president. Bob, you spent the Clinton era outside government, but you returned to public service with President George W. Bush, serving as US Trade Representative initially. Let me go straight to the issue of the Iraq War. You spoke earlier about the sense of restraint that accompanied power in the George H.W. period, but that restraint fell away in the early years of George W. Bush's presidency. After the shock of 9-11, Mr. Bush not only decided to invade Afghanistan and eject the Taliban, but he went on to invade and occupy Iraq, which of course his father had never done. How did you feel about that decision at the time as an alumnus of the George H.W. Bush administration? And how do you feel about it now as an analyst of history? Well, first, Michael, you know a lot about how government works. And I'll get to your question, but recall, you know, I I was the U.S. trade representative. Mm -hmm. So in the U.S. system, I was the, they had the cabinet responsibilities for trade. 
frankly, you spend most of your time trying to manage things in your own lane. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate in that, in that Bush 43 really believed in trade, but in part because of all the activities you mentioned, you know, this wasn't number one or two or three priority on his list. So mm-hmm. I had a pretty good range. But coming back to the Iraq issue, I think, again, the challenge for historians for, for that will be to get a sense of the trauma after 9-11. You know, as time passes, we've not had another significant terrorist attack in the United States. I mean, Australians had one in Indonesia. The sense about danger, I remember being warned, actually, as I was off to an APEC meeting about the potential for, you know, a biological anthrax that I might have been exposed to. Mm -hmm. So it was an every, and I think the intelligence information, whether right or wrong, flooding into the White House must have led to a sense of real anxiety about the need to prevent this. And then that led, I think, to the second point, which is that, again, people may debate, but if you look at the judgment at the time, there was a belief that Saddam Hussein was, did have nuclear weapons. It turned out to be dead wrong, but that was the judgment at the time. I guess a third point, and this is a lesson from the intelligence side, one of the challenges in that environment is you need an intelligence person who will also say, you know, what they really don't know. And you had a situation there where the CIA director came from the Clinton administration, wanted to be part of the team. And, you know, one of the judgment calls will be whether he was, in a sense, willing to be unpopular by saying things that they didn't know over time. So these are the things that people will have to sort through. Those are all good explanations as to why Bush made that decision. But just putting on your analyst's hat or your historian's hat, now looking with the benefit of hindsight, what do you think the effect on America's position in the world was of that decision? Well, clearly it was traumatic. But then I think just as difficult was the sort of lack of preparation and and consideration for really what came after. And here, again, I'm, I wasn't at the table. I have to be a little careful at this. There was a different view between Don Rumsfeld at the Defense Department, who basically wanted to get out, <laughs> and frankly, what President Bush ultimately decided, which was to try to remake the society as a democracy, which is a huge challenge. I think that took time to sort of work through the administration. You know, eventually you had the surge as uh, that Petraeus led. So it w- it's a painful part and it's obviously leads a difficult legacy as does Afghanistan. You mentioned that your file at the start of the W administration was trade. You were the USTR and one of the big issues you had to deal with was membership bids by China and Taiwan to join the World Trade Organization. Talk to us about how you and the administration thought about bringing China into the international financial system and trading system? So without getting too technical, when when a country wants to join the WTO, they have to negotiate bilateral arrangements with all the existing members. And then they have to fit through some of the systemic rules. So by the time that I came into office, Charlene Barshevsky had negotiated the bilateral arrangement. The Commitments that China made in terms of lowering barriers were very significant, certainly compared to other developing countries. And even, I think, for example, in the agriculture market, they, it was more open than the European Union was at the time. And by and large, I think China kept to those quantitative commitments. The qualitative ones, IPR enforcement, forced, uh, other forced technology transfer, that's where I think some of the problems developed over time. 
this is where I, a bit contrarian with some of the conventional wisdom in the U.S. these days, the idea that engagement with China failed is just factually incorrect. You can point to a lot of accomplishments. However, what does happen in the Chinese story is clearly by the time of Xi Jinping, there's a change to trying to revive the strength of the Communist Party, strengthen the role of the state. And the rules of the WTO are frankly not up for that. I mean, the core issue there is going to be state subsidies. And while things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership have rules on competitive neutrality, you don't have those in the WTO. So I think one of the challenges here for the U.S. and Australia and others is how do they want to sort of remake modern rules, whether for data or for subsidies or others, and kind of the best combination of ways to do that. My own sense is that's where things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but also the WTO can be useful. And I think the U.S. has disarmed itself by walking away from those. Bob, in 2005, you gave an important speech in which you urged China to be a responsible stakeholder. What was your argument then? And to what extent does that argument still hold today in the era of Xi Jinping? So recall the context. In, in 2005, China had been a member of the WTO. It's a member of the UN Security Council. It's part of the World Bank and IMF. So the strategy that the U.S. and others had been pursuing for some 20 years of integrating China had been accomplished. What I was trying to do with that speech was to say the systems that China had joined served China very well and now would have to assume the responsibilities in that system. Now, of course, in doing so, I was recognizing China's accomplishments. I was treating it with respect. And frankly, you can, again, point to things like the cooperation we got with China on Iran sanctions, working with North Korea. Frankly, in the global financial crisis, they had a very strong response. When I was dealing with genocide in Darfur at the State Department, I got the Chinese to help me in the UN Security Council and help pressure mm. the, the government in Khartoum. So there were a lot of things that could happen of that nature. But I think, frankly, what we've now seen is, unfortunately, neither the United States nor China have been acting like a responsible stakeholder. And that's one of the dangers we've got in the system. And that I'm sure would be of concern for Australia, which has benefited from that rules-based system. Now, you can't ignore in this context, again, the effect of, of Xi's shift. And the best little story I can give to explain this is that when Xi took office in 2012, he created a documentary film about the end of the Soviet Union, which we'd just been talking about. Well, if that film were made in Europe, it would have Gorbachev as the hero that helped end the Cold War. The Xi Jinping version is a little different. Gorbachev is the fool that abandoned the Communist Party, led to rack and ruin, destroyed his country. And the not so subtle message is it's not going to happen here. And I think in understanding China today, one has to recognize his intense focus on the Communist Party and regime stability. I think one of the dangers we now face is that he has read the combination of the Trump period and the early Biden period as the U.S. not ex being able to accept China's rise and so standoff as a constant. At the same time, he thinks the East is rising, West is declining. I don't think he understands a lot of the strengths and resilience of the West. And I think we're now at a point Michael, where China may no longer be trying to seek some of the cooperative dialogues that, frankly, I was able to get with them on a number of issues on development and environment and other topics. And so its main focus is now try to avoid miscalculation and conflict. And I think you're seeing 
the Biden administration starting to recognize that. So their early view was obviously they didn't want to look soft on China. They had the momentum coming from the Trump period. But as communication started to wane, you saw President Biden sort of starting to reach out and say, well, can we cooperate on climate change or others? And I think the message from Xi Jinping is to, has basically been, look, you know, don't expect that you can do this a la carte. We're going to have to have some framework for how we try to deal with this. And I think it's going to be much harder now, Michael. You're going to need a combination of deterrence, of which the U.S.-Australia alliance is a key component. You're going to need areas where you compete and you're going to need areas where you cooperate. A couple of years after you gave that responsible stakeholder speech, you became the president of the World Bank. It's often interesting, I find, when I observe my American friends go into multilateral situations because Americans are sort of habitually inclined to getting things done, as you said, Baker is. And the multilateral world, there are as many restraints as there are opportunities to change things. Did you enjoy that job? Was it fun? And what did it tell you about the, the strengths and limitations of multilateralism? Well, first, Michael, I have to say I'm touched that you think Americans are devoted to getting things done. I wish there was a little bit more of that culture, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, I'll, I'll take the observation. You may recall, I came into the bank at a time of crisis. My mm. predecessor was forced out for a complex series of issues, and it was a somewhat revolutionary moment for the staff. And that's unusual for a career civil service that is basically, you know, a series of PhDs. And fortunately, I made a strategic judgment that turned out to be right. And there were, there was a lot of sort of advice for me to have endless discussion sessions. I clearly had some problems I had to try to clear up, which we were able to do. But I made the judgment that most of the people would have come to the World Bank because they cared about development. And the sooner I could get them focused on the task, the more effective that I thought we'd be. And that was fortunate because within a year, you had the global financial crisis and, the, and along with it, a food crisis. When In trying to understand the nature of the World Bank, it's a very creative analytical staff, but you have to, in a sense, the role of leadership is to connect it in networked fashion with private sector, with other governments, with sort of NGOs and civil society, where frankly, it was extremely rewarding was you could push ideas and advance them. Like I had the idea of using open data resources. So to, to give you an example, I used to go to meetings and sometimes professors would come up and say, look, you've got great data resources, but you charge for us to access them. So I went back to my economic staff and they said, well, the reason we charge is that we mash them in different ways and we need to be compensated. And it took me a few runs to recognize that really this was a $3 million budget offset that, that helped them. So I took care of that and we opened up all the data resources and started competitions that say, work on the Millennium Dellen goals, use our data and come up whether with games or mapping or other types of things. So one of the challenges for the international system going forward is whether it's the WTO on trade, the World Bank, the IMF, the WHO, how can those institutions play a role in these networks? And frankly, it's going to be a lot harder with the competition now between China and the U.S. We spoke earlier about Jim Baker's Washington, George H.W. Bush's Washington. Washington has changed a lot. And the Republican Party that you joined a long time ago has been largely Trumpified. Are you still a proud Republican, Bob? Well, I, I was a very strong opponent of Trump before his election and during his administration. 
because of both policy and character, and frankly, I was anxious what he would do to the institutions and even the Constitution. And sad to say, I think I've been proven correct. So I think this is a very uncertain time. The thing to watch here will be there were 10 House Republicans who voted for Trump's impeachment. And what happens to them in the midterm elections, one has already sort of stepped down, will be very important in trying to reduce Trump's influence or let it fade, which is still quite strong. And so I think that's the challenge that things have. And, and frankly, the concern is, is that we, we need a two-party system in opposition. I think Republican Party under Trump has undermined its ability to play that properly because to me, the fundamental question in democracies is that they can have a lot of resilience. People need to keep in mind that democracies aren't there necessarily to produce the most efficient result. They're there to stop the worst result, as Churchill said. They're, you know, the worst system compared to all others. But that requires a willingness to accept losses and a willingness to accept defeat. And frankly, I think the U.S. system will have resilience if our politicians accept that to their credit. You know, when Trump tried to deny the election result, you had Republicans in many states and judges stand up and resist it. But I'm troubled by the fact that too many politicians haven't accepted that and haven't clearly accepted that Trump has tried to undermine the electoral system and, in my view, the Constitution. I think that's a fundamental danger. Do you worry that he may be the next Republican nominee for president? And indeed, he may be elected president? Well, Australians know politics. You know democratic politics. You've had surprises in your elections. It's too early to tell. But as I said, I'm concerned about the support that he still has. The other side of this, of course, is that while, frankly, I've been supportive of what the Biden administration is trying to do, they've got their own challenge. And I'm not saying that their progressive wing is the same as, as the Trump wing, but it's I, I'm a little worried that it's going to undermine some of the centrist support, some of the positions. So I suspect putting my political analyst hat on that the Biden White House believes that the most important things that will determine their future will be their success with COVID and their success with the economy. So to go back to James Baker, when he was chief of staff to Reagan in 81, he said, you know, Mr. President, you have three priorities, economic recovery, economic recovery, and economic recovery. Mm. So I suspect that will be determinative. But as you know, in politics, you just can't tell. What about Biden's foreign policy work to date? A lot of it has been focused on Asia. For example, we saw the upgrading of the Quad Security Dialogue to a leaders level meeting. The withdrawal from Afghanistan didn't go as everybody had had hoped or would have wished. What grade would you give President Biden's foreign policy nine months in? Well, I think for Australians, it's important to start with this point I mentioned about COVID and the economy. So Biden's got a huge domestic agenda. And in addition to COVID in the economy, he's got issues of infrastructure, he's got racial issues, he's got voting right issues. It's absolutely huge what he's faced. Now, his advantage is he's probably got more experience in dealing with Congress than any president since Lyndon Johnson. But as you know, particularly in our political system, where you've got separation of powers and the parties being very close, it takes a huge amount of time. And so I think the natural extension for his foreign policy was how some of the domestic issues might run internationally. So this would be pandemic and biological security, some of the climate change issues, 
immigration, which is another huge domestic topic. They've stumbled a little bit on that. I think the problems with the southern border are going to hurt them politically. Frankly, they're in a bind. They wanted to show more empathy towards human beings, but as they did so, they sent a signal that people were welcome. And that's created a political as well as a human crisis for them. On the pandemic, frankly, I had suggested to some of them that they look at the Bush 43 project that for HIV AIDS in Africa, which is probably one of the best legacies we've had there, which was not only providing money and vaccines, but a distribution system. But I think they're catching up on that. I think the president's statements at the time of the UN General Assembly show a stronger commitment. But in a sense, this is where the U.S. could demonstrate abilities that no other country can, which is to work with Africans and others on the distribution system. I, I, this is an issue I'm working with, so I have some familiarity with some of the Africans on this. And on climate change, we'll see. I think the challenge here will be one needs to go beyond statements of intent to kind of a diplomacy with the Chinese, the Indians, the Brazilians, and others. The big missing piece in their multilateralism strategy is trade, as I've mentioned. And I think this is going to haunt them. They haven't really engaged on the WTO, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and other issues. I think on the security issues, their first focus has been with allies. That makes sense. With Afghanistan, I might have taken, I probably would have taken a different position that Biden did, but I understood why he decided to move out. And here, I think it's important to recognize retreats are the most dangerous maneuver, whether militarily or politics. And frankly, I think it, it was wise for him to follow up what was a not well handled departure with some initiatives. And this is actually where the AUKUS arrangement comes in. It's where some of the pandemic action could come in. So it's early days, but ultimately this will all have to fit with a strategy in dealing with China and the future of free societies. All right. Speaking of AUKUS, this has been one of the big surprises and big developments, this pact between the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia, which promises closer military and scientific ties and the development of a nuclear-powered Australian submarine fleet. What do you think of AUKUS? What do you make of it, both from the US perspective and from Australia's perspective? Well, I've tried to follow some of the Australian press on this. And just to share with you, I, I think in the US, and particularly from people who follow foreign policy, security affairs, the most important part is a signal for deeper defense industry cooperation. So I understand the attention on the submarines and we can talk about that. But where this is a potential breakthrough is that traditionally our defense department and defense industry and even the U.S. Navy were very reluctant to share a lot of the industrial technology. I think where AUKUS could be most important is a partnership with the three countries, and I hope it can extend to others, on issues like AI and quantum and weaponry. I think from having had discussions with Australians on this, it, the AUKUS builds on the intelligence side cooperation, the five eyes, but it'll be important to keep pushing because as you know, with governments and you know, you've know you written about this historically, you can frame an issue, you can set a course and strategy, but somebody has to actually deliver it. On the submarine side, I don't claim to be an expert on this. I have saw some of the writing that Malcolm Turnbull and others had raising reasonable issues. From what I've heard, the PLA's Navy has had advances in detection and destruction, and that the French submarine technology was probably too loud, and there's a question of whether Australia was even getting the latest French technology. Then there's debates on how one sort of handled the departure. You know, from an American point of view, over time, 
having eight Australian nuclear subs compared to what I think the French have at present, one French frigate is a good trade. <laughs> so, but then, you know, you have issues of that I know people have discussed about the nuclear reactors and timing of construction and others. But I'd come back to the reason I think this could be important. And again, the regional reaction, I think, in Japan and India and ASEAN, somewhat divided, this reflects its basic position, is important. But I think the biggest part will be on the defense industry cooperation, which I hope can be good for, for all three countries. And the last point, Michael, is, you know, again, what, from my perspective, what's missing in this is the economic and trade component. It's great that the United States helps protect sea lanes and the trading systems across the Asia Pacific. It'd be nice if we would participate a little bit more in some of that trade and and shipping. Let me pull back just for the last couple of questions, Bob. Again, let me mention this terrific book you've written, America in the World, A History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy in which you set out five traditions of US foreign policy. Can I ask you, what surprised you the most when you were doing the research for the book? You had a deep knowledge already about the history of US foreign policy, but as you were down in the archives and reading all the stories and and looking into the issues, what impressed you the most? Well, there's a couple points that you've kind of already touched on. One is, you know, one of the themes of the book is the pragmatism of policy. And what I try to do in the book is use stories to focus on problem solving. And in a way, Michael, it's a bit of an antidote. There's a lot of, in universities these days, foreign policy is often taught through international relations theories. Mm -hmm. And that's fun to debate and to engage. Not really, but anyway. But, (laughs) but, But what I was trying to communicate as somebody who worked on German unification or China or trade or Darfur or others was, the theory isn't too applicable when you're really dealing with a problem. And so what was fascinating and fun was to go back, not only in the post-World War II period, but whether it's the Louisiana Purchase or John Hay in the Open Door or in 1921, the Washington Naval Conference, which was part of an effort with regional stability, and to see how people in practical terms tried to deal with problems. So that was what I was trying to emphasize in the book. And of course, there are people who didn't succeed. And there's lessons to learn also about things like arms control, how they have to be connected with a regional security structure over time. And so that's sort of one impression. The second part is the one that we talked about a little bit, which is while I took this up to Bush 41, I had a seminar at Harvard with faculty and graduate students. And they said, look, you can't stop with 1992. And so I used the five traditions to look at the presidents, Clinton, Bush 41, Bush 43, Obama, and and Trump through the lens of the five traditions. And what struck me was this influence that Bush 41 in his four years actually had for the presidencies that followed. And then you start to see in the Obama era, a little bit of kind of a turn back in. And it may have been the global financial crisis. I think it was partly Obama's natural reserve and kind of distance on things. And then Trump is the sharp reversal. So in historic terms, I found that interesting. And Bob, just a final question. We've covered different aspects of your very impressive career in in public life. And we've talked about some of the individuals you worked with, like Baker and and 41 and so on. Are there one or two other figures that you've encountered over that time that really impressed you? Well, what I would leave with people is that underneath the level of the great names that you hear, it's very important 
to find the network of people who will accomplish things sort of at the level below. So while I was a cabinet minister, I was also at various points working with undersecretaries and, you know, key advisors. And surprisingly, there's relatively few people who actually see their job as moving the agenda forward and action. Fortunately, in my Australian experience with working with the free trade area, you know, I was able to accomplish that. But people like Pascal Lamy, who was the European Trade Commissioner and then head of the WTO, Giorgio in Singapore, Charles Pohl, who worked for Thatcher. What you find in the international system is those that are really going to be good at getting things done can identify others who they can trust to sort of work on problems. It's a little bit like the theme in the book. I suppose at the macro level, having worked with Chancellor Kohl in Germany in unification, one of the stories that he told that I always liked was that the sign of a statesman is somebody who recognizes fate as she rushes past and grabs onto the helm of her cloak, which is a a line from Bismarck. That's part of what Kohl was. Kohl was an excellent domestic politician, but he also had a sense of vision and direction, and he could move at a critical moment of time. So, you know, today, this is an environment where I think a lot of people can feel frustrations and unhappiness. But if you look over time, you will find these people across different political systems. And I hope that as we deal with issues, whether traditional security or climate or biological security, that we continue to sort of give those people the chance to get things done. Bob, I've really enjoyed speaking with you today, hearing about your career and once or twice hearing the whistle of fate as she rides past us. Thank you very much, Bob Zellick, for joining me today from McLean, Virginia, for the Director's Chair. Glad to be with you, Michael. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fulilove. Thanks for listening.